I think in, in terms of news, what would be great to kick off with uh, is, is Swift Server. So that's that's the conference that you went to, was it, has it been two weeks now? Yes, it's been almost two weeks. Um, we're, we're recording on Wednesday, so uh, it's been a week and a half at the moment. Um, and yes, I did. I, I headed down to London for the Swift on Server conference, um, which was uh, the first time I've actually been to a Swift on the Server event. Um, I must admit, I had a great time. It was a really good conference. Um, the venue was incredible. It was in the Science Museum in London. And uh, we had um, private use of the flight gallery, which is uh, where they have all sorts of airplanes hung from the ceiling. And there was a Harrier jump jet in there. And there was a cross section of a 747, uh, which was uh, amazing. Um, and so we had that area for our uh, lunch breaks and coffee and tea and that kind of stuff. Um, and then for the actual conference, we had um, the IMAX theater, which um, I've never presented on an IMAX screen before. Uh, so that was quite an experience. Well, was it 3D? <laughs> it wasn't 3D. And I did notice that they, because I, I was actually thinking about this before the talks, is an IMAX screen is so big that you can't really see the edges of the screen, like intentionally. You're supposed to get this immersive experience of, of not being able to see the edges. And so I was hoping that they wouldn't put the slides full screen on the IMAX because um, you wouldn't be able to see all the slides, but they were, they were centered, um, and, but they were still e e enormous. It was the biggest screen I've ever presented on for sure. <laughs> and that whole conference was great. It was really good to hear various different bits of Swift that, you know, I've, I've been to a lot of Swift conferences, but mainly they talk about iOS development, Mac OS development, uh, and it was nice to, uh, be at an event that was talking about server-side Swift that was focused on that. Yeah. A um, couple of talks that I wanted to uh, kind of highlight, really. I was really um, impressed with Andrew Barber's talk on um, globally distributed server-side Swift. Uh, and he was talking about uh, his Swift cloud product and running, running Swift code on an edge network, basically. So not on a server that you control, just on a kind of managed set of, I guess it's called serverless, isn't it? That's what they call it, right? Yeah, like cloud functions. Yes, cloud functions or something like that. Terminology is killing me with that stuff, but yeah. There's so much of it right here. <laughs> um, and my first instinct with that talk was that it was very interesting, but that it wasn't going to be useful for Swift Package Index. And then within three or four days of me getting back, um, we're using it. So little did you know at the time, yes, <laughs> exactly. Yes. Uh, so I believe, uh, you're going to talk a little bit about that later, um, Sven, because that's what you've been working on at the moment. Um, uh, but, um, but yeah, that, that was a talk that had instant, uh, impact, which is, was great. Yeah. Um, I also really enjoyed, uh, Matthias Pipari's talk. Um, he's from Canonical, uh, who are the people behind, um, Ubuntu and, um, he was talking about distributing Swift or making Swift more easily distributable. Um, at the moment, there are the Docker images that Apple produce, but if you want to put Swift onto a Linux machine, um, the process for that is not as simple as apt to install Swift, uh, which I think it should be. And Matthias um, thought it should be as well. And so he was giving a talk about that, but also offering his help to um, get 
Swift to be as easy to install as, you know, Swift install, sorry, apt install Swift 5.7 or whatever. Um, and that again was just, there was a really good community feel at the conference and to have someone from Canonical come forward and say, we would really love to help, um, Swift become a, a wonderful language on Linux as well was, was, was inspiring. Um, and there were lots of great talks throughout the day. Uh, those are the two that kind of stood out for me. But it was also nice to see lots of Apple representation there at the conference. Um, so there was obviously the sponsorship from Apple was quite unusual for this conference. Apple yeah, yeah. stepped up and, and sponsored the conference. Um, but also they attended the conference, which is, if anything, even more important. <laughs> yeah. So they had several speakers at the conference um, uh, and also they had lots of representation uh, there in the audience talking to people it was great to see i thought it was a whole the, the whole conference was really good well and a big announcement right with the foundation um open sourcing and, and splitting up into packages was announced at the conference wasn't it yes that was tony parker who uh, actually kicked off the conference with uh, an announcement that swift was going to be re-engineered in an open source as an open source swift package which of course is an enormous announcement fantastic for the for the swift language and a great step forward for swift on linux especially yeah or should i say swift on other platforms yeah i i haven't actually encountered that personally the the struggle with foundation um but it does pop up often when people are doing server-side swift um i guess the the we don't have as much of a problem because um size isn't really an issue but especially yeah. with wasm and stuff foundation can be quite um quite big to to deploy and we're not doing, I think the, the biggest problem is like foundation stuff with formatters and, and things like that, which aren't um, all available on, on Linux as they are on the on macOS. Um, that's the only thing I remember where we had trouble with foundation being different um, on macOS where we typically de develop versus Linux where we deploy. Right. We had a couple of issues there where we we're trying to do a, a string formatter and it wasn't available. But yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Um, to just see that move into open source and um, also being split up into smaller packages so you can pick and choose. And I think it's also a huge implication for uptake in, in Swift within Apple, dogfooding, having more libraries being written in Swift, uh, lower level stuff being now possible to be written in Swift. Sounded really great. Yeah. I, th I think it was, it was a very positive uh, conference and I, I liked uh, somebody posted uh, one of my slides from when I was talking, uh, and they said this was my favorite slide from the conference. Um, and it was a slide that was in my slide deck that just said the the future is bright. And I, I <laughs> obviously I agree with that because I said it. But uh, but I do I do think that the future is very bright for uh, for server side Swift. Yeah, and and it was actually a really neat coincidence because as you were at the conference, um, I had started working on. On an improvement to our um, doc hosting system. So what we do is we upload docs to S3 and we were having some issues because doc sets can be quite large. Um, and one way of, of fixing that, um, I was considering to use a, a Lambda function or like a, a cloud function, which is, you know, it's not necessarily AWS specific, but something where we can send a zip file, which then unzips it and uploads it to S3 on its own time. The, the, the issue we were facing that we are uploading 80,000 files spread, um, a gigabyte of, of data spread across 80,000 files and 
and we were having some trouble with the number of files being uploaded within the time window we have available for our builders. So our idea was to zip it all up, ship it somewhere and have that something deal with the intricacies of uploading that to S3 and the retries per file and, and all that sort of stuff. And that's a nice thing to do in sort of a cloud function, right? You don't, if that works, it's much nicer than having to deploy a machine that runs all the time when we're only doing this for like 250 packages at the moment. Right. And um, so I looked at AWS Lambda for that and um, there is the Swift AWS L uh, Lambda runtime of the package by Apple, which is really nice. You can very get started very easily to build a Lambda, run it locally even, you know, play around with it. <laughs> but then comes the time, the moment of truth when you need to deploy it and then when it hits you and you look at AWS and think, God, there's so many things to configure. How do I even start? And there's a very nice blog post by Fabian Fett that describes it and a few others. And But the description is quite lengthy. And I thought, hmm, all right, well, let me at least look around if there are other ways to maybe do this. Because uh, I recall seeing some cloud function kind of thing that wasn't AWS that, that seemed promising in having a much easier um, way of deploying. And that was Swift Cloud and by um, Andrew Barber. Um, and, and that's also an index. So I looked at looked it up, Swift Cloud on the Swift Package Index. And I, I just love when I develop stuff and actually use the index to define things. It's always good to use your own software, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, looked it up, pulled it down, looked at the docs. Very nice. You just create a package write your stuff and then there's a super simple deploy step um, via Swift Cloud, uh, its web interface. Effectively, you just push your repository and when it's connected to Swift Cloud, um, it looks at, you define what branch you want to, um, or if you want to auto-deploy and when you've set it like that, any push gets deployed and it's available immediately and um, it runs, it runs your cloud function. And I found that amazing, like within five minutes I had it deployed in the cloud in a public, publicly available URL that I could use curl with and interact with. And that was, that was just amazing the experience. And I would have loved to use it, but there were, you know, a couple of problems that sort of prevented. And I, we had a chat subsequently with Andrew and he, he, uh, you know, he recommended that we, for the time, for what we are actually trying to do, especially because we're talking to S3. Swift Cloud isn't the perfect tool at the moment because then we also pay, um, you know, all the traffic into S3 when we're actually, if we upload the, our zip file to, to a Lambda, we avoid, you know, all that overhead of actually talking externally into S3s. Yeah, because it's all like the Lambda and the S3, they're all running within the same local network yeah. effectively. And so we don't pay any traffic uh, outside that. So all we all we would have to do at that point is upload a zip file to AWS and have AWS pick up that zip file, unzip it onto S3, and and that's a, a relatively simple uh, task in terms of AWS yeah. functionality. Yeah, and the 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 other interesting thing is that something that's so seamless that it's very easy to forget about because what you're actually doing, you're not compiling a Swift executable on ARM or x86 with the Swift compiler, normal Swift compiler toolchain, because what we're actually doing in Swift Cloud is you're using the Swift WASM toolchain to compile a, a WASM, I don't know what, what you call them, is it, is it an executable? 
um, that then gets deployed into a WASM runtime. Um, <laughs> I'm a bit hazy on how that actually works. Me but too. my understanding is this is sort of a, a, I think you can think of it as a VM that can execute these uh, WASM binaries, which are very efficient. I mean, it's not like JavaScript that gets um, uh, uh, executed on the fly and, and sort of, uh, what you call it? Um, Just in time compiled? Hotspot compiled. It's it's an actual computer executable that's compiled ahead of time, in a sense. So it is it is more efficient than that. But it's it's also not a normal executable that you could you know the same executable you would run on your ARM Mac or your x86 Mac and then would just ship and have run in a in a VM in um in you know an AWS Lambda or something like that. And the reason why that's important is is and that's an issue I ran into. Not every package you might pull in as a dependency would necessarily compile in Swift Wasm. So, for instance, I was trying to compile Soto in order to interact with S3, and that unfortunately failed because a dependency that Soto is pulling in, don't quite recall which one it was, didn't actually compile on Wasm. Uh, I think it was even a, a C, some C code that didn't compile. There was other C code that it does compile, which is kind of amazing if you think about it. It is, yeah. But this particular one, it, it didn't. So um, there, there's maybe an argument to be made that we have an, a need for an additional platform in the index to show what packages are wasn't compatible. But it, it's really interesting how how much you can abstract that away and not even think about it until the moment, you know, the moment of truth when, when it all bubbles up and the leaky abstraction sort of fails or the abstraction leaks and, and you see... You get a compile error um, that you're not expecting because your, your platform isn't quite the one you yeah. you thought you were running against. I think there's an interesting conversation we had around WASM compatibility because you're right that it would be really useful to be able to, in this very specific situation, to see which packages were compatible with WASM. But I think there's a there's a little way to go before we should actually add that to the index in terms of clarification and adoption of WASM itself because so a lot of people and Andrew was talking about this in his talk a lot of people think of WASM as a browser technology so I'm going to run some Swift in my Safari or my Chrome and it's going to I'm going to be able to write Swift to modify the HTML DOM and of course that's not what we're talking about here we're talking about running WASM as a server side through still through a JavaScript interpreter but as a server side process and really what you're talking about there with compatibility is compatibility with with that situation and i think if we stuck anything to do to do with wasm on the package index site at the moment people would assume that was a browser-based wasm which i don't believe is i think we would need a separate compatibility test for that as i understand it and so i have a feeling that this is going to need a little bit more time to propagate into the community and if this takes off then absolutely we should do that. But we're going to have to be very careful how we actually represent that compatibility on the matrix. Yeah, I think the target to test is the WASM toolchain because that's the thing that everyone would use to actually compile the Swift package with. And obviously there also, you know, you have to look at versioning, you know, because a 5.8 WASM Swift toolchain you know, might have different behavior than Swift 5.9. Yes. Um, but I think in that sense, it's, very similar to all the 
the other flavors we're testing. But you're right. I mean, it's it's just very new, and I guess it's also not um, not a very common yeah you know thing that people would be looking for. So the real estate on that page is pretty precious, and I, we don't have that many columns available to us. You know, we have to sort of be a bit careful how many things we uh, we show there. Yeah, I've had some thoughts around that recently, actually, with um, with how we represent that data and as we get more platforms, because again, something else that came up at the conference was um, Windows compatibility, which I think, I think if we're going to tackle another platform, Windows would probably be the next one we'd tackle. Um, and we're already getting quite tight for space in that area. And also the box for iOS is the same size as the box for Windows or WASM, which is is <laughs> yeah. nice and equitable but it's not it doesn't it doesn't represent the current reality um and so i think we need to we need to maybe rethink that area of the page a little bit because also the area of the page even just for compatibility takes up a large amount of space um but there's a lot of quite complex information to um represent in that area so it's, it's a it's a tricky uh, design problem but we'll we'll maybe have a think about that as we uh, as we go forward yeah, I wonder. I wonder if there's a some rearranging that we could do because I, I think over time our Swift version split is becoming less and less important. It really um, is. I think yeah. there'll be an upcoming big one when it's Swift six, but I almost wonder if it isn't at some point going to be five dot x and and six and it's effectively a Swift version two column thing that we display. Um, at least on that page, maybe with a bit more detail in a in a click through, where if there's even a need to s split out five x further, it's probably not worth it on that on that uh, initial page. But at least, I mean, when I look at stuff, it the five x are really not that important anymore. I haven't seen a package in a long time that. Um, where where that sort of compatibility made any any difference in my decision? Me too. Yeah, I think I think five six was a big one. Really, I think five six introduced a few things that people started using straight away, and so I quite often see no compatibility with five five and five four, but five six and above is almost always like there's. I, I very rarely see a difference between five six and five seven. Yeah, might actually be an interesting thing to query because we can and we have in the past checked what packages have um you know steps in there yes you know, package would be compatible with five six but not seven that sort of stuff so yeah in um otherwise what was really nice with the so that was actually my first experience working with um aws lambdas or any any sort of cloud functions and i was quite impressed with the quickness with which you can trigger aws lambdas i mean you shouldn't be surprised because it's in the marketing, but when you actually go into the AWS Lambda console and click on test, it just immediately executes that thing. And that's quite astonishing because you get billed for, for like 300 milliseconds of compute for that single function call. And, and that's kind of remarkable if you think about that, the whole mechanism. Um, it, it is remarkable, and and I think I think more remarkable is is that what you're saying is that um, you read some marketing and it was true. <laughs> well, I'd say I didn't ac actively read it. I I just you know subliminally 
<laughs> it filtrated my brain, I guess. That's how well that works, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so the last couple of weeks have been, um, for you at least, a lot of a lot of cloud stuff. Yeah. Um, for me, I have been um, investigating a problem uh, that we've had for a little while with our Google results, and I've made some progress with it, which is good. So we have a situation where um, well, we have a sitemap on the website which tells Google, so a sitemap basically is an XML file that has a list of URLs in them. And against each URL, you have a frequency with which you would like Google to check for changes on that page. Um, and a sitemap is really important for a site like Swift Package Index because there is no one page on our site that links to all packages. Um, because most of what you do is through search, we need to tell Google what our full set of package pages is because it's not going to find them just by browsing, which is what it normally does. So normally it finds your site, it goes, follows every link on every page, and effectively that's what it considers the entire surface area of your site. A sitemap, of course, is a list of URLs where you can say, if you didn't find it, here's all the URLs you, we would like you to start at. And what we do is we give Google all of the package page URLs so that it knows about every package, but then we let it explore from there. So from there, it can click on the um, on the, the the release information and it can click on the build information, that kind of thing, and it can explore from there. And it has been successfully doing that so far. The problem we have is that it stopped doing that with documentation um, and we're getting very inconsistent Google um, coverage on our documentation. So some packages have their documentation completely indexed and there's no problem at all. Some packages, the documentation is not even in the Google index. It's decided not to index that page whatsoever. And there are solutions to this where you can go into the Google search console and you can say, please go and index this page now. But I've resisted doing that because that's not a, that's not a solution for the future like i it, we, we can't have anything that relies on me logging into a web page and clicking a button there's no way for you to spend your monday there's, there's no way for me to spend my life yes exactly um i can do less damage if i only have to do that uh but it's certainly there are better uses of my time i think so i've this is the problem i think what all i've done so far is describe the problem um i've figured out i think what the problem the underlying issue is, and it's all to do with our support for versioned documentation. So one thing that Google does not like is it does not like repeated information. So if you took somebody's website and made a clone of it and hosted it on the web, hoping that you would grab their um, Google search results, um, Google has lots of safeguards within it to stop you doing that. And um, uh, Effectively, what we're doing with our with our version documentation is exactly that. We're taking a copy of a documentation site and re-hosting it and saying, look, Google, here's another copy of this site. Um, will you love us now? <laughs> um, and what it actually says is it says, no, we won't. But doesn't it, doesn't it realize that it's the same domain? I mean, I would imagine that well, would sort of short circuit that process, no? It, it does, but it's still a problem in that you're uploading two copies of this effectively. I mean, yes, between versions, there will be some differences in documentation, but also potentially no differences in documentation. 
Yeah. So it does see this as a problem, and I've I've confirmed that. Even there's in the Google Search Console, you can dig into why it's not um, um, indexing, and it's not as simple as just reading the message. Like there was a little bit more to the investigation than that. But I think this is the problem, and what it wants is it wants a canonical. Um, so in the HTML, you can put a meta tag in the head, and you can say this is duplicate but it's duplicate of this document and this document is the canonical version. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we need to do to fix it. Um, so what we'll do is on the, as we render the documentation pages, we can insert into the, and we already do this for our style sheet and that kind of thing. Um, we can insert into that head section of each page, a new meta tag that says, the latest, the, um, the the canonical version of this documentation is our latest stable version uh, of the documentation. Yeah. And I haven't yet implemented that, but I'm pretty sure that that will be the, um, the, the, the solution to this problem. Yeah, nice. And the doc sets that actually did show up, was that perhaps because they were referenced in the packages readme or, or, you know, like externally to? No. So it's 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 a little more and this is part of what was so confusing about this problem is it is inconsistent and what good like when you have the entire internet to index everything you do is you do your best with it and you, but, but but nothing is perfect um and so what google does is sometimes it does index this stuff and sometimes it doesn't and i think it's partly because we've got so much duplicate stuff that at some point it just it said hold on a minute, right. there's a whole load of duplicates in here, I'm not going to bother indexing anymore. <laughs> and so you end up with this situation where maybe the first things that it indexed were okay, but then over time it decided not to trust us quite as much, and and that's also why we need to fix it. God, that, that Google robot is surprisingly human. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, I've, I've spent a bit of time over the last couple of weeks thinking about Google, and that is such an old bit of code now, I'm sure. I mean, it gets constant, constant iteration, but for such an important job that, that Google bot that crawls the web, I think there probably are some fascinating edge cases inside that code base. Yeah. <laughs> it's also completely, um, I, I'm sure nobody is able to understand the entirety of that uh, bot. Oh yeah. Yeah. That must be a remarkable, um, yeah, just, just, just to imagine the, the, the scope of that thing. Yeah. And also, uh, what's always fascinated me about Google is the, the storage of all of that information so that you can, you know, if you imagine the sheer quantity of data that that search engine is indexing and it brings back results in 0.1 seconds, 0.01 seconds, it's, it's remarkable how that piece of software works. Yeah, that's remarkable and scary. You know, for anything you do yourself, you think like, God. <laughs> there are many things that Google does that, that, that I'm not a big fan of, but, but the, the underlying search engine technology, I have nothing but absolute respect for. Yeah. yeah. Shall we do some package recommendations? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. We're already half an hour in, so we probably should. We are. We've talked a lot today. Yeah. Um, I will kick us off this week um, with uh, a package called Rich Text Kit by Daniel Seide. Um, and this is a Rich Text 
editor that works with both UIKit, AppKit, and SwiftUI. And while I haven't tried it, it looks kind of interesting. So the most impressive thing about it is that this is a cross-platform. And again, we're using the definition of cross-platform that includes iOS and macOS. <laughs> <laughs> um, this is a cross-platform uh, implementation of a rich text editor. So if you're building an application for both uh, with SwiftUI for both um, macOS and iOS, you can use this um, uh, this package. Um, and if I just click through to the documentation here, it's actually come from a commercial product. Um, so there's a product called Arebi Writer, um, which it says on the documentation is out soon. If you actually go through to the website, I believe it is already out. So this is a an application with spell checking, text to speech, and a smart keyboard is how they describe it. Um, and this package has been extracted from that. So if it's, I always think that if a package has come through that has made it into a commercial um, application where the purpose of the application is to be that thing, yeah, I think that's got to be worth checking out. Yeah, definitely. You know, that's um, you know that tells you a lot. It's going to be because it's so central. It's going to be maintained and yeah, um, yeah, going to have a bright future ahead of it. And again, great documentation. Nice. Um, the documentation is not hosted on this package in Next, but it is Docsy documentation uh, hosted on uh, GitHub pages. Um, and uh, it looks great. I, I think if you're in the market for a rich text editor, you should at least certainly check it out. That's great. Yeah, I mean, in particular, because on my understanding is on Swift UI, probably need something like this right now. I think the, the built-in versions aren't capable enough to cover, you know, lots of slightly extended use cases you you pretty quickly run into the issues where you need to wrap something and if this does it for you that's that's probably really helpful and also i think once you get into wrapping then you start to you, you start to progress into a single platform wrapper rather than a cross-platform wrapper um and i think what they've yeah. done there is think about this because I'm, I'm guessing their application is cross-platform um so i think they've had to consider that from every aspect so i think it'll you yeah. know, it's the kind of thing that, because it's in a, as you say, because it's in a product, it will get regular maintenance. And if you, if you can, if you can leverage that to, to, to save yourself some time, I think that's great. And it's also worth giving that company a bit of credit for taking what is at the core of their commercial application and open sourcing it. You know, that's always, always nice to see. Yeah. Very nice. Um, Right, I've got actually a set of packages um, that I wanted to list, and and that's born out of my my work on that um, documentation uploader. What I needed there to to work with that is something to zip and unzip, and I didn't want to shell up to the command line in particular. You know, a it's it's, it's always kind of hacky. Plus, in the lambda, that's not an option, and I wanted to use it on both ends. So I was looking around for zip and unzip, and um, as I said earlier, it's just great when you can use, you know, the index when I can, I'm always happy when I can use the index for stuff. So that was an opportunity plug zip in also platform called on Linux. So for people who don't know, you can actually filter in our search on a platform. Um, so uh, to make, um, to select packages that support that platform. And I knew that I needed Linux support. It's probably just worth focusing in on that for a second. Um, 
because that's potentially something that people haven't done with the package index is once you search for something you can then and there is a little bit of help underneath the search field on, on after you've searched um but you can just say so for example i i would imagine your query for this was zip space platform colon linux and that will filter search results that contain that keyword either in a tag or in a sorry in a keyword or a um in, in the description or in the package name um, and then filter it by confirmed platform compatibility with Linux. Exactly. Um, yeah, and that turned up a number of results um, and, and good results. Um, so, for instance, I, I, I zeroed in on, on three at the start. Um, that's uh, Zip by Roy Malestein, Zip Foundation by Thomas uh, Zirkling, and SW compression by Timofey Zolomko. And um, yeah, these were you know, amongst the top hits. And then I clicked through just describing the mechanism a bit, how, how I picked and how you know chose the packages. And, and things I looked for was, you know, how long has it been around? And these are all these have all been around for a long time, seven years, five years, six years. Um, all active fairly recently, ten months ago to even just hours ago releases also within that time span so you know already i had three packages that were very promising um the first two have more than 30 contributors even um the last one um sw compression you know a bit fewer that's just four contributors but but still um around for six years and then what i did is i tried them out in a playground just to get a feel for the api and and i could even plug in my zip file and unzip it in the playground to see, um, you know, how that would go, what the options are on the, you know, if I need any, I don't need passwords and stuff, but you know, it's it's the sort of thing that's really nice to do with just the tools that we have available to to play around and without having to set up a package, import it and, and do all that, I, you know, I could play around with the API and, and just choose. And then I picked, I ended up picking Zip by Roy Marmelstein and the, the main reason was um, it's the one that can be built without any dependencies. Right. Now, the others don't have package dependencies per se, but they do have a an OS-level dependency on um, on Zlib. So it needs to be installed on the on the OS side. So on Linux, you need to have the development um, libset dev installed. And the zip package avoids that by shipping the C sources for zip within the package, it just builds it. And that's really nice because then I don't need to worry about the Lambda image to have that installed. And it's, it's just a, a nicer process for, for my use case. But yeah, it was a really nice experience to, to do all that, play around and, and, you know, have it ready for, for use. I love that story because it shows real practical use of the Swift package index. And the fact that you didn't just take the top uh, package obviously um you had a look at you know several prominent packages that the hat was highlighted were highlighted by the uh index and actually analyzed um you know using the the features that we've built like how well maintained is it how long has it been in development yeah. and you also mentioned the um contributors which was uh, you know we talked about last episode and i also have been really appreciating having the author names right there uh, but yeah, I thought it was uh, such a great story of just 
a real practical use of of using the software we've, that we've built, and I'm, I'm happy that we we have a zip uh, package that we're happy with as a result of it. You know, just think of the amount of time that saved us. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't think writing a zip uh, algorithm is, is anything you want to be doing. <laughs> Great. Um, my next package uh, recommendation is uh, a very catchily titled DSF Quick Action Bath. <laughs> Um, by Darren Ford. Uh, so this is, um, well, a little bit of background first. I think I personally am a big fan of software that has great keyboard support. Um, I am a big fan of, at the moment, my and for the last couple of years, my, my preferred keyboard navigation tool has been Raycast for launching applications and launching shortcuts and um, that kind of stuff. And and what Raycast does is it brings up a, a window in the center of the screen where you can trigger that just like you can with Spotlight Search and just type something in. But I'm a big fan of that whole um, process of just bringing up some kind of keyboard input, Spotlight, spotlight type keyboard input, and uh, being able to just type a couple of keystrokes to get something done. In fact, there was a um, application um, called Details Pro, which is an iPad application uh, for designing SwiftUI, um, is for designing SwiftUI user interfaces. It doesn't, it's not code-based, it's it's more like a design tool um, where you could build up HStacks or VStacks and put buttons in and put labels in and that kind of stuff. And recently they added a keyboard navigation type uh, interface like this, where it brings a bar in the center of the screen uh, you type something in. So for example, in that application, and I'm, I know I'm going down a rabbit hole here, but bear with me a second. <laughs> <laughs> so let's say in this application, you have a label and you want to take that label and wrap it in a H stack because you're about to put something next to it. You can bring up this keyboard navigation and just type wrap and it will say wrap in H stack, wrap in V stack. And it's a really nice way, quick way of, of uh, navigating around that application. Again, things like Raycast or Alfred or even back in the day, Quicksilver um, have been productivity tools that I've been a great fan of for, for many, many years. And of course, Spotlight, you know, Apple also have this within um, both iOS and macOS as a, a Spotlight. Back to the plot, Darren Ford's package is an easy way to bring that kind of interface into uh, a macOS application. So it is macOS specific um, and um, you could very quickly build up something that has a text field where you can enter some text and then have a drop down list of things that you provide uh, to do actions within your application. And the main reason I want to recommend this is because I love this type of interface and anything that makes it easier for people to implement this kind of interface, I'm going to be a big fan of. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. Really nice. I, I also use these extensively. I've actually, I've started mapping. Uh, command P to those kind of command bars because I never print. <laughs> right. So Xcode's quick open is, is command P because it's sort of a similar interface. So then I know in every app where that has that sort of command interface, I just hit command P um, out of habit now. That's interesting. Yeah, I, th I think this is this is great and anything that uh, encourages people to, um, to, to think more about keyboard navigation in macOS applications is a good thing. Um, it has... AppKit and the SwiftUI support, but only on uh, macOS. So, also has great README, good documentation. It's it's great. 
nice. Right. Um, my second package is one that we probably mentioned before. I think you, you recently wrote about it on IOSF weekly as well. And that's Lottie. Um, but you know, apart from it being a really nice package to create, um, animations, there was a, a 4.0 release uh, recently, like two weeks ago. I think it was just after we, we recorded our last episode. And the thing that caught my eye in that was they moved, they changed how they, how they, uh, where they do their rendering. So in, in versions prior to 4.0, they were using the CPU to, to run their rendering engine. And they've moved this to use core on animation now, and they've been actually doing this under the hood. So in starting from version 3.4, they had an op, an opt-in flag, um, where the, where you could switch your rendering over from, you know, the CPU, um, based rendering over to the graphics card, based rendering, the core animation based rendering. Um, so they actually shipped this quite a while ago, um, but they were, had this behind a feature flag and tested it and and the the nice thing is this is completely api backwards compatible so you actually need to do n nothing other than upgrading to 4.0 and the the effect is quite remarkable so there's a blog post and we'll have um a, a link in the show notes that that shows an example where the cpu utilization drops from around 15 percent in that example to zero like literally zero you see no effect of the animation running um in instruments um, and I, I found that really nice where just upgrading a package will give you that sort of benefit. And that's a 15% can mean, you know, other stuff that you're doing is, is blocking your, you know, causing drop frames and stuff because, you know, 15% just might be a bit, you know, you might not have those 15% available. Yeah. It's a really significant, um, uh, performance increase and, and to drop it so low is, is, is remarkable work. Yeah. Yeah. Really nice. And in particular, that is, there's really just no effort required. Just, you know, upgrade and, and that's it. Fantastic. I love that. So you're right. I did write about this on iOS weekly. And, and one of the, the points that I made there again was about effort, not in effort in upgrading between this, but to be able to take a tool like Adobe After Effects, which is really comprehensive animation tool and also industry standard animation tool. So you've got an enormous pool of people who are skilled with creating animations in After Effects. And then to, to be able to have, and I know there are some limitations, you know, it, it can't do everything that After Effects can do, of course, but to be able to take vector animations, export them to um, a common format, and then have those able to be used in iOS apps on the web, in Android apps, I, I love the idea of this because these little animations can be really effective in your application's user interface. And to create them purely through code, of course it's possible. Yeah. Of course it is. But you suddenly have a person who is not skilled with creating animations, having to create animations and, and to allow people who have the skills with animations to be able to use their tool and then use that within your application. I think it's, I, I love everything about this package. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's a great point. It just makes it so much more accessible to create these things and, and spread it out, right? It doesn't have to funnel through, you know, that, that one person who does the coding necessarily. Yeah. And even if you are doing the coding and you can do an animation, it's going to be more 
difficult to express what you were intending with with just a pure animation. Now, animations for moving things off the screen, moving things on the screen, you know, hiding a, a piece of UI or bringing it back with an opacity fade or something like that, sure, write that in code. Yeah. But as soon as you get into anything that's actually animating multiple things or, you know, things interacting with each other, I, I, I think there's a clear advantage to using a tool like this. More experimentation, right? You're not going to... Exactly. You know, to, to quickly try a few things, I, I can't see that being very efficient uh, if you code around, unless you randomize it. <laughs> it takes a long time to write good animations. Okay, um, my last one is a quick one, and it's by uh, Wilhelm Fox, and it's called Array Builder Module. Um, and it uses a result builder, uh, and in fact, I can summarize this in literally one sentence. It uses a result builder to build arrays. So you can have a result builder style syntax like you have with SwiftUI and every element that goes into that result builder ends up in an array. And there's not a lot to say about this package, but I thought it was worth um, uh, worth mentioning. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I saw that. I think it has a compelling use case because you might be tempted to think, come on, let's maybe not take um, result builders too far, but in certain scenarios it, it makes it easier to declare an array where you include elements conditionally and you don't want to build up a, a temporary array that you then modify you know, in subsequent steps yeah so that's that's actually a nice use case you're right and i think that's the key thing and i think if there's anything to criticize about this package is that in the readme file the example some of the examples that are in the readme file stretch what you should be doing with result calls a little bit <laughs> yeah <laughs> and yeah. i understand how that's happened because you want to you want to show off what this can do but what you end up with is is fairly um uh <laughs> fairly obscure but i think i think there are good uses for this um and and, and as you say um it can it, the conditional nature of putting elements in array i think is the main use of this Nice. Um, right. I'll, I'll be quick on my, my third and last one as well. Um, this is not actually a new package. It's, uh, it's a fork of Swift backtrace. Um, um, and I wanted to highlight that and it's by Nathan S. Uh, I could not find Nathan's last name. It's not fully spelled out anywhere that I could find it's. So as I said, it's a fork of Swift Backtrace. Swift Backtrace is a package that you can include. So this is very server-side um, Swift specific that you can include to make sure that uh, if your program crashes, you get a proper backtrace in your logs that you can then inspect. And the nice addition here is uh, it, it ties up the stack trace you get out. So it adds colors and, and splits off the path info. It makes it just nicer to read. A simple addition that I I hope might get upstreamed into the actual Swift Backtrace package, um, but even that package isn't isn't going to be around forever because there's actually an effort to be made, as an effort being made to bring uh, Backtrace support into the actual toolchain, and, and I hope this would also make it into into that package. But I wanted to mention it because um, until that actually happens, um, Swift Backtrace is still a package that's being used in um, server-side Swift projects, and that might be one new you might be interested in using to to make those a little nicer. That's great. So yeah, there you go. Swift Backtrace Fork by Nathan S. Wonderful. Well, let's, uh, let's wrap it up there, shall we? And um, um, yeah, 
I think the schedule over, because obviously we're heading into the, the holiday period at, at the moment, um, but I think the fact that we record on a bi-weekly uh, schedule means that our next one would be released on the um, 5th of January. Yeah. Um, and I believe we should be okay to, to do that. So we're actually not going to take a uh, holiday break this year. Exactly, yeah. I guess um, see you all in the new year. Yeah. Bye-bye.